True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 33, The Murder of Karabo Mukwena. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to chat about a few things happening with the podcast. The first is that on the 22nd of June, we celebrated our first birthday. On that day in 2019, I uploaded the first three episodes of True Crime South Africa. I was entirely convinced that I'd get about five people listening. So, what happened next? Well, yes, it blew my mind. You all got on the True Crime South Africa train, and pretty soon, the podcast had rocketed. Today we're closing in on 280,000 downloads. What do those numbers represent though? Well, for me, they represent what this podcast is all about. Voices for victims of violent crime in South Africa. That number represents close to 300,000 times that someone heard a victim's name and found out something new about them. And 300,000 times that they were remembered. For the unsolved cases like Marie Ostbo, Amatle Tibete, Tracy Thompson and Connor Isaacs, that number represents 300,000 opportunities to have witnesses come forward and trigger the right conscience. I have met some of the most phenomenal people in the last year from all walks of life and I've had experiences that I never thought I would have. I'm not nearly in a place where I can do this permanently yet, but the other work I do now is far closer to what I want to be doing than ever before in my life. I'm not going to turn this into a motivational talk, but I would like you to know that if you have a dream you want to achieve, it really is never too late. I'll be turning 40 this year, and my professional life has turned around 180 degrees in a year. While I enjoyed my work in corporates and management, there was always something missing, and that was purpose and meaning. This podcast and the freelance writing and other work I do now is based around a purpose. Was it easy? No, hell no. Was it worth it? without a doubt. So before I waffle on too long, I want to say thank you to each and every single person listening, because you've contributed to the success of this podcast every single time you listen. Oh, by the way, in case you missed it on social media, True Crime South Africa even got its own birthday cake. One of our listeners, Cindy Fandenbrook, made the podcast its very own cake. I was seriously blown away with the gesture, and I want to take this opportunity to thank Cindy again. When I saw the cake, I thought it looked professionally made, but I thought that maybe Cindy was just a really good baker. Then on Instagram, I figured out that Cindy is actually a professional baker. So her business is called CVDB Designs, and she makes amazing cakes and she also does baking workshops. She's located in Bryanston, so if you're in that area and looking for an amazing cake designer, I highly recommend Cindy. Please note that Cindy is probably going to kill me for putting this out onto international airwaves, and she had no idea I was going to do this. Another exciting thing that's just happened is that listeners can now get True Crime South Africa merchandise. 
Instead of going the traditional route and ordering a bunch of t-shirts and forcing everyone to wear the same thing, I decided to give you guys the opportunity to personalize your own merch by using a company called Personalized For You for South African listeners. I chose to do the merch this way to begin with because I think it's pretty cool that you can pick your own design, cut and color, and also because it frees me up to focus on podcasts and not have to run around posting t-shirts. The personalized for you merch platform is for SA residents, and as 40% of my listeners live outside South Africa, I could not forget you, so I've opened a tea public store for our international listeners. I'd also like to thank our new Patreon members, Jeanette Ferreira, Penny Wilson, Jason Shu, Ajit Singh, and Balikan Mashabane for signing up to support the show on Patreon, as well as Christelle Donovan for her contribution through PayPal. All of your support is greatly appreciated. If you're able to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of shows, inviting your friends to listen, and interacting on our social media platforms are just as important. So after that, you guys are probably wondering whether we're actually having a case discussion today. We absolutely are. I chose this case because of its rather outlying link to a more recent case, the murder of Chekhovatso Pule, the woman who was recently brutally murdered and whose unborn child was only a month away from taking breath for the first time, when it was also killed. I'll get into that link later on. But Karabo's case stands on its own as a devastating period in time for South Africa. It sparked a huge outcry against intimate partner violence. These cases seem to pop up from time to time when they are particularly brutal and they make us angry and fire us up and we create hashtags and start organizations. And then our anger gets lost, and it takes another case to smack us in the faces again. It takes an Uyuneni or a Megan for us to get marching again and start creating those powerful hashtags. Maybe we need to stop waiting for the most horrific case we've ever heard of, and maybe we need to start focusing just on that victim for as long as it takes. Because that one victim is enough. And that one victim is already too much. So today, I will tell Karabo's story. And she won't have to be an icon for a movement. Because she was Karabo. And that was enough. Even with success, people are not interested in where you come from. No one wants to know you're from Soweto, you were raped. No, no. people just want to know how you overcame it. Mm. You can give us your problem from A to... People just want to know the solution. Yo, you went through this, and therefore, how did you come out of it? No one wants to know it's okay. Mina, hi, so not. Stop playing victim. That was the voice of 22-year-old Karabo Mukwena. And I don't think I have to underline how feisty she was. That is the voice of a strong, intelligent woman who was just starting out in life. The McQueen family struck me as really close-knit. Karabo was a part-time business studies student in 2016, and she was living with her parents and siblings in Soweto, South Africa. She was described by her friends as an absolute joy to have around, always happy and always at peace with herself. Photographs of her show a stunningly beautiful young woman who's comfortable in her own skin, a woman who Karabo would go to for spiritual advice, Dr. Adele Charlie, said that when she met Karabo, she, quote, looked at her the first time and thought, this child is going somewhere. She had dreams, beautiful dreams. She had strength, which was unimaginable. End quote. 
Carabo was really close to her sister Bontle, who describes her as outgoing and sociable. The sisters shared a room up until the day that Carabo left her parents' home and never returned. The sisters also shared a dream of starting a charity foundation, and they'd been toying with the idea of starting an NGO. Bontle says that her sister had a huge amount of compassion for others, and she was truly beautiful, inside and out. It would be this strong relationship with her sister and family that would make it even stranger that when Carabo found herself in trouble, she didn't fall back on that extremely strong support network. In October of 2016, Carabo met a 27-year-old man called Sandile Manso. Sandile was the father of three small children, who were all still toddlers at the time, but he'd become estranged from his wife. The reason for this breakdown in his marriage has never been brought to light, and while it may have just been the pressure of having three young children in a short space of time, when one considers this man's later actions, it's difficult not to wonder if there was more to their estrangement. Sandile had graduated with a degree in graphic design, and according to his Facebook profile, he'd worked for a few design companies in the past. When he met Carabo, though, he was working for himself as a forex trader. He lived a fast-paced and indulgent lifestyle, and he claimed to earn hundreds of thousands of rands a month. After separating from his wife, Sandile rented an apartment in the upmarket Santon Sky apartment building. Rental listings online put a studio apartment in the building at about 1,500 rand per night. Sandile drove a gold BMW, and his social media is littered with screenshots of successful forex deals and photographs of him with his clearly expensive watch shoved into the camera frame so there's no possibility anyone would miss it. Although it remains to be seen exactly how successful Sandile was at forex trading, he was very good at convincing other people that they could be successful at it. At the time he met Carabo, he was charging people 6,000 rand for a one-day forex trading course. He would give his students support afterwards, but I can't help but think that what their money was buying was actually hope. The hope that one day they could be just as successful as Sandile appeared to be. Here's a snippet of one of his lessons on trading psychology, as he calls it, that I found on YouTube. Your ultimate objective is one. And what is that objective, Steve? <laughs> Ladies and gents, the utmost ultimate objective is success. Okay? 100%. Your goal is to succeed in the market. Now, if your goal is to succeed in the market, success, that word success is pregnant with meaning. Success is a state of mind. Okay? Most people in this country are in poverty, not because of the situation, but because of the state of their mind. And if you are given tools that are geared to make you successful, but your state of mind is not success-driven, why is it that so many traders are failing in this country and in the world abroad? It's because their state of mind is not success-driven. If success is your ultimate objective, you need to become a student of success. You need to know all the things that pertain to becoming successful. Then when you trade, you will become a success. Most people approach trading with a failure's mentality, and as a result, they fail. Man, I don't know about you, but I just want to get out there and change my mindset now, because clearly this guy has the secret. Sandile Manso is eloquent and dynamic. He could probably sell ice to Eskimos. His reasoning, though, in my opinion at least, is a little skewed, and it's difficult to ignore the fact that he seems to have no problem making people feel inadequate. Listening to him, the way he pointedly makes you feel like there is 
little else standing between you and the pot of gold at the end of the forex rainbow than some deficits in your thinking. Smacks of manipulation. On the outside, this guy seemed to have it all going for him. He's good-looking, rich, successful. He even played a major role in his church and presented himself as an upstanding citizen who just wanted to help others. And that's why when he met strong, beautiful, ambitious Carabo, they must have seemed like the perfect couple. And indeed, many on Sandile's side of things said they did seem very happy. Carabo's friends and family had a different tale to tell, though. Within a month of officially starting to see each other, Carabo told a friend that Sandile had smashed her phone on the ground and pushed her against the wall after they'd argued. Carabo moved out of her parents' home and was soon living full-time with Sandile in the Santon Sky apartment. Her mother, Lolo, recalls telling Carabo that their home would always be her home too, and she could come back whenever she wanted to. The relationship was rocky from the very beginning, and there seemed to be only very short spurts of calm between the storms. Christmas 2016 came and went, and in the run-up to Carabo's birthday in March 2017, the violence from Sandile seemed to intensify. It was during this period that Carabo started sending photographs of bruises to her friends and voice notes describing Sandile's behaviour towards her. Friends warned her to get out of the relationship, but they said that she seemed to be under a spell. Their strong-willed, smart friend was continuously willing to give Sandile a second chance. One said that it seemed like Carabo would do anything for the man. It was in February 2017 that Carabo's family became aware that her relationship was abusive. Her mother told her to get out of the relationship, reminding her that she had a safe place at home. It's difficult to say exactly what was going on in Sandile's head at this point, but I did find it interesting that this usually avid social media user last posted on Facebook in February that year as well. It would be in the following months, on Carabo's birthday, the 27th of March, that the turmoil between the couple would come to a boiling point. The McQuena family and Carabo's friends were unable to reach her on the morning of her birthday. Eventually, later that day, she made contact, explaining that she was in hospital. Sandile had smashed her phone, and she'd been unable to contact them. He had beaten her viciously the previous night, leaving marks around her neck. He seemed to have struck her directly in the eye, because her eye was completely bloodshot. Photographs showed bruising all over her face and on her legs. This is when her mother Lolo made a frightening prediction. I told her straight, get up. Sandile's going to kill you. You can't go on like this. This is not now this is not toxic relationship. I don't know what to call this. No, this one. I know. I told her. But you know our kids. Karaba's brother eventually convinced her to lay a charge of assault against Sandile. She arrived at Morningside Police Station, fully prepared to do so, and was surprised to hear that Sandile had got there first. On the morning that Karabo had been in hospital, Sandile had laid a charge of assault against Karabo, claiming that she had beaten him. Let me be clear here, and say that the concept of a woman being an aggressor is not a ridiculous one. It happens all the time. But if Karabo was the aggressor, it fails to explain why she looked like she'd been viciously assaulted, 
and Sandile didn't have a mark on him. Sadly, Karabo's family would later say that the policeman that Karabo had wanted to open the case with had asked her to reconsider because they didn't have time to investigate counterclaims between angry lovers. Just a month later, they would be investigating something far worse. Karabo did leave Sandile's home at that time. She moved back in with her parents, and her physical wounds began to heal. The emotional wounds were still clearly evident, though, and on a night out with her friends two weeks after the brutal beating, she happened to be in the same nightclub as Sandile Manso. Seemingly feeling herself being stripped of her strength, she phoned her mother and told her that he was there. Her mother advised her not to even say hello to him and just leave and come home. Unfortunately, Sandile worked his charm and they did end up talking that night. The toxic connection had been re-established. Shortly after they reconnected, one of Karaba's friends said that she'd called her complaining that Sandile was flirting with other women and openly displaying gifts he had bought for them on Instagram. She said that he had not once apologised for having put her in hospital. Karabo did not move back in with Sandile, but on the 26th of April, she told her mother that she'd be going out with him that night and possibly staying over at his apartment. Lola recalled calling that night to check on her daughter. Karabo answered, but in a whisper, she told her mother that she couldn't talk and should call her back. That was the last time Lolo McQuena spoke to her daughter. She called her again on the 27th of April, but was unable to get hold of her. By the 28th of April, with her daughter still not answering her phone, Lolo and the McQuena family sprang into action. They spoke to friends of Karabo, who said that they had seen her at a club with Sandile on the evening of the 27th of April. The couple had a fight and had stormed out together. That was the last time anyone had seen her. Lolo called Sandile and he seemed surprised to be hearing from her. He said he had no idea where Karabo was. She'd left his apartment the previous day. During this period, inquiries by the Mokwena siblings at the Sanson Sky building led to them being handed Karabo's identity book and passport. Cleaners had found the items in a dustbin. On the 30th of April, the Mokwenas managed to report their daughter missing, despite having tried to do so for two days. The reason for the difficulty in registering the missing persons case is unknown. Karabo's friends launched an enormous social media campaign to find their friend. Lolo continued to call Sandile, asking him whether he'd heard from Karabo, and sometimes outright asking him what he'd done to her. She said that during one phone call, although she said nothing about her daughter possibly being dead, Sandile had said, quote, Mamzo, I don't know where Karabo is but I didn't kill her. End quote. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone asks me where my husband is, and I say, I don't know, there's no reason for me to follow that up with, but I didn't kill him. On the day that Lolo was able to register a missing persons case for Karabo, the police accompanied her to Sandile's apartment to question him. When they arrived, he wasn't there. The policeman called him and he said he'd only be able to see them around nine o'clock that night. Lolo said they'd wait. While they waited for Sandile, the police asked security for the CCTV footage over the days that Karabo was last seen. This would become vital evidence in this case. Sandile eventually arrived at 930 
and started off by saying that Karabo had left his apartment and he didn't know where she was. He then said that he thought she may have gone to London. Clearly that was not possible if her passport had been in the dustbin. Sandile was taken to the police station for questioning, and Lolo accompanied them. She waited in reception for any news of her daughter. She recalls that after some time had passed, a female police officer came into reception and asked her to accompany her to an office. In that office, Lolo McQuena received the worst news of her life. Sandile Manso had just admitted that Corabo was dead. Sandile would go through many versions of what he claimed had happened to Corabo, but he denied killing her. He did admit to having removed her body from his apartment and said that he dumped her in Bramley. Sandile hadn't just left her body on the side of the road, though. He admitted to pouring pool acid over her body placing a car tyre around her neck and then dousing the tyre with petrol and setting it alight. He agreed to take police to her body. Sandile was taken by Morningside police officers to the place where he said he had burned Karabo's body, except there was no body there. The ditch, which was located in a field near Sandile's parents' house, showed signs of scorching, but there was no sign of Corabo. Regardless, Sandile was arrested for the murder of Corabo McQuena. Now, they just had to find her. It would be days before the devastating puzzle would finally be put together. It turned out that on the 29th of April, the day after Sandile says Corabo died, and the day before her parents were able to lodge their missing persons case, a police station in a neighbouring jurisdiction, Duenfantine, had been alerted to what passers-by thought was a burning mannequin in a field. Onlookers were not sure if what they were looking at was actually a person. That is the extent of the damage that Sandile Manso did to Karabo Mokwena. Dunfantine police had attended the scene and, of course, worked it as a homicide, but they had yet to identify the deceased person when Morningside police called to say that they had a pointing out and a name, but no body. The horrific pieces began to fall into place, and in early May, more than ten days after she went missing, DNA confirmed that the badly damaged remains indeed belonged to beautiful, vivacious, 22-year-old Karabo. Her mother had already known, though. Lolo McQuena had insisted on seeing her daughter's remains, despite police pleading with her not to do so. The mother was eventually allowed to look at what remained of her daughter on a screen, but the only part of Karabo that was not covered was a small portion of her lower legs and her red-painted toenails. Lolo said that she knew that was her child. She didn't need the DNA confirmation. Sandile Manso was advised of his rights by police officers before he made any statements. He would, however, claim that he had not been. He would also deny that he had ever made any of the following statements to police officers he spoke to. Sandile initially claimed that Karabo had been killed by someone else, and he just found her body in his apartment. He said that because he'd been accused of assaulting Karabo before, he was concerned that people would try to pin the death on him, so he disposed of her body. In another version... He maintained that he hadn't killed her, but now, instead of a third party being involved, he claimed that Karabo had committed suicide. In an attempt to support this version, he claimed that Karabo had tried to commit suicide before, and he and a security guard had saved her. 
as if these stories weren't bizarre enough. One of the detectives would later testify that Sandile had told her that Carabo had sacrificed herself to break a curse on them. He claimed Carabo had introduced him to a man she called Master, and this man had conducted a blood ritual between them several months before. The ritual was intended to bond them for eternity and to ensure that their pairing would bring about great financial success for both. Sandile said that there was one catch to the ritual, though. If they ever broke up, one of them had to die. Otherwise, they would both be cursed forever. Karabo had therefore decided to take her own life, to take her own life on the 28th of April, by stabbing herself in the neck. He said that she'd done this while he was out, and he'd returned to find her dead body. He said he'd gone downstairs and retrieved a rubbish bin on wheels and used it to transport her body to his car boot. He'd then driven to his parents' house, picked up a tyre and pool acid, as well as a five-litre container, and then gone to a petrol station to fill the container, and then carried out his gruesome burning and desecration of Carabo's body. By the time the trial came around, Sandile denied ever mentioning this ritual, and instead continued on with the version that Carabo had committed suicide for reasons unknown, and he'd simply disposed of her body because he was afraid he would be accused of her murder. Of course, none of these versions accounted for the fact that he had set out to completely destroy her body. That is something that is common in intimate partner violence, though. If you're going to leave me, then I am going to destroy you, not just kill you. I am going to remove every trace of you from this earth, and your family will not even have a body to bury. Because you belong to me, and if I can't control you, then no one will have you, dead or alive. The ritual theory didn't want to go away, though, because one of the policemen who'd seen Karabo's body in situ insisted that many of her organs had been removed. A manner of death for Karabo Mukwena was actually never determined, partially due to the severe damage done to her body, and partially, at least according to this policeman and some other sources, because many of her organs were not present. Further information regarding this aspect has never been released to the public, but I can tell you that during my research, I unfortunately stumbled upon a photograph of the upper part of Karabo's body. It is something I wish I hadn't found, but honestly, it gives me more questions than answers about the sources who speak about missing organs. The tyre appeared to have been burned around Karabo's neck and upper shoulders, so most of her face was destroyed, except for the very top, and from what I could see, there was very little tissue left in the chest and trunk area where these organs would have been. It takes a very hot and sustained fire to completely destroy a human body, and Sandile certainly did not achieve that. He did, however, pour pool acid over her prior to setting her alight. Pool acid, however, is not pure, and most of the sources I read said that simply pouring acid onto a body would only burn the skin and certainly not eat through flesh or organs. I am sure that there was information about the autopsy and the condition of Karabo's body that was not released to the public. Whether I believe the ritual killing aspect or not is a moot point. The CCTV I mentioned would blow Sandile's suicide claim out of the water. Karabo's family and friends all vehemently deny that Karabo ever tried to take her own life before she was murdered. The security guard that Sandile claimed had helped him to save Karabo 
the first time she tried to take her life. When questioned, had no idea what Sandile was talking about. Watching the CCTV of the 27th and 28th is eerie. On the 27th of April at 16.52, Sandile and Karabo enter the lift lobby of the Santon Sky Apartments. She's walking ahead of him and has her head down. Her body language is despondent and there's a clear distance between the pair. She has a toiletry bag and her handbag in her hand, possibly indicating that she doesn't intend staying over any extended period. This would be the last night that her mother would speak to her. The next footage we see is when the couple return from their night out. This is possibly the most eerie footage of all, as we know that they are the last images of Karabo Mukwena alive. She looks exhausted, or upset, or both. The couple wait for an elevator, but don't interact. Karabo enters, and we never see her exit again. For some reason, the footage available on YouTube has been redacted to exclude a crucial four-minute period. During the trial, Sandile claimed that he left the apartment around 6pm, and that this was when he'd returned to find Karabo dead. That section is not included in the footage I saw, but according to the state's case, he's seen exiting the elevator at 6.22pm, and then enters to go back up to his apartment only four minutes later. The state argued, and quite rightly in my opinion, that it was highly unlikely that Karabo had taken her own life in the precise four minutes that he was out of the apartment. Is it possible to commit suicide in four minutes? Absolutely. If you are already in that mindset and know exactly how you're going to do it, and if your method of choice will result in certain and instantaneous death, then sure, that's possible. Sandile claims that Karabo killed herself by stabbing herself in the neck. Now, firstly, this is a rather rare method of suiciding, and it's even more rare for women, especially young women. In the period between 1997 and 2016, the predominant methods of suicide in women in Karabo's age group in South Africa were overdoses or poisonings and hanging. The percentage of other methods of suicide, which would include stabbing oneself, are almost negligible from a statistics point of view. Stabbing yourself as a method of suicide is also not a foolproof method. It is highly unlikely that you're going to be able to stab yourself in the neck several times, and you would have to be pretty familiar with the anatomy to hit your jugular or carotid arteries with one stab. Those veins sit closer to the Adam's apple in the front of the neck, though, and Sandile claimed she'd stabbed herself in the side of the neck. So this scenario would be possible if everything fit into place and defied all the odds and statistics, but then it would still need to happen in four minutes. Possible? Yes. Probable? No. The CCTV next shows Sandile much later that night. Just before 10pm on the 28th of April, he exits the elevator, apparently wearing different clothing than he was on the 6pm four-minute trip. He disappears from view and returns with a wheelie bin. He enters the elevator and goes up to his flat. 22 minutes later, he reappears with the bin. This time it appears to be far heavier than it was before. We know from his admissions that Karabo was inside the bin at this time. Due to the nature of her remains, we don't know if she was really deceased or just unconscious. And horrifically, we don't know whether she was even deceased when he set her alight. 
we can only go on what Sandile says, and he claims she was deceased at that time. We don't see Sandile removing Caraba's body from the bin at any time, and I'd be interested to know whether the police were able to get any camera footage from the parking lot itself. The next image captured of Sandile is at the boom gate, leaving the parking garage in his gold BMW. We know that Caraba's body was in his boot at that time. Sandile returns to the building just past midnight that evening. He's wearing latex gloves and carrying a trash bag, which seems filled with items, but not necessarily heavy from the way he's carrying it. He disposes of the bag in the room where the dustbins are kept, and walks back out with his latex gloves still on. Although little had been done about the assault charge that Karabo had laid when she was alive, it was now added to his charge sheet. He was charged with premeditated murder, defeating the ends of justice, and assault with intent to cause grievous bodily harm. Besides his several versions, Sandile would go on to delay the trial with several tactics and sidelines that did nothing but attempt to slander Karabo's name and stall proceedings. He claimed that he'd been assaulted in jail and used this as a delay. He also accused one of the detectives on the case of offering to get rid of the charges in exchange for a bribe. He then launched into a character assassination of Carabo, claiming that she'd had extensive sexual partners, was suffering from trauma resulting from a previous rape, and that she'd been extremely violent and erratic. He said that Carabo had become, quote, addicted to the high life, end quote, after being given 100,000 rand per month by a previous lover. Sandile claimed that rather than being abusive, he was actually trying to help Karabo to become a better person. All of this is simply Sandile's last stab at Karabo. He has now murdered her, and almost completely destroyed her body, so the only thing he has left is to try and destroy her memory and reputation. It wouldn't matter if Karabo, who was a grown woman, had a thousand previous lovers, and all of them gave her a hundred thousand rand a month. It gave him no right to kill her. Also, he was the only one with this opinion. Every other person who spoke about Karabo said that she was confident and passionate, but no one said anything about her being violent. In his statement, Sandile said, quote, her family knew the nature of our relationship. They knew that I was a positive influence in her life. All these things about homes and stuff. I inspired her to start those things. I was the one who was helping her set up the NGOs. I have experience in setting up NGOs. I tried to be a positive influence in her life, but it's unfortunate that I came into her life at a point when things were really bad. Maybe I am guilty of trying to build a person and being the last one there when she collapsed. The truth of the matter is I tried my best to make the best of the opportunities. End quote. So besides clearly living in a narcissistic dream world and being obsessed with the word I, he's trying to speak for Karabo's family here. Yes, they did know the nature of your relationship. Her mother said that she didn't see any love between you, and begged her daughter to leave you. Her brother convinced her to lay charges against you, and her family immediately suspected you of killing her when she went missing. That, Sandile, was the nature of your relationship. The judge, in sentencing Sandile Manso, called him a devil in disguise. He remarked that Sandile was most definitely a threat to society. In May 2018, Sandile Manso was found guilty of all three charges against him. He was given a cumulative sentence of 32 years in prison 
for all charges. One of Sandile's defense lawyers said the following about the sentence, quote, The sentence itself was harsh. We expected at least 15 years. That's the prescribed minimum. But I think the judge here went overboard. There was absolutely no reason for him to do that. We would expect sentences of this nature for people who get out there with firearms and robbing banks, not a matter which transpired from a love affair, because that's essentially what happened. End quote. And that is the narrative around domestic violence that continues to permeate through much of society and allows it to continue. That robbing a bank is somehow worse than abusing and murdering your partner. It's a matter between the couple. We'll look away until they sort it out. It's their business. We'll pretend the bruises aren't there. It's a lover's tiff. We don't have time to investigate counterclaims of assault. We don't have time. We don't have interest. We don't see the point. Until a 22-year-old woman ends up in a felt with a tire around her neck. Then we suddenly have all the time and interest in the world. Sandile's lawyer was, of course, just working his way up to an appeal. In 2018, after his conviction, his lawyer confirmed that they would like to appeal, but he intimated that Sandile did not have the money to do so. It seems the high-flying alleged top forex trader and trainer had blown through all of his money. How terrible. Sandile had two defence lawyers. There was Victor Similani, who gave that statement to the press, and then there was a man called Tumasang Katake. In the last few weeks, history has repeated itself when 28-year-old Shekhovatse Pule was found tied to a tree and stabbed or hacked to death in a felt. She was eight months pregnant at the time. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty, but a man has been arrested for Shekhovatso's murder, and it appears to have been linked to the father of her child, albeit possibly through a hitman. So how does this link to Karabo's case? Well, Shekhovatse's uncle is Tumasan Kataki, Sandile's defense attorney. The man, upon hearing that his niece's murder had been linked to her intimate partner, made a statement that he would refuse to defend any clients in future that had been accused of murdering a woman or child. This is the statement he made at his niece's funeral. I have represented different types of criminals who have done horrendous crimes. Yes, including the one who murdered Karabo. Tiho today is Karabo Mukwen. I now know how it feels. I now know what the family of Karabo went through. Yes, I did my job, but I now know how it feels like. And from this moment on, this is my pledge. You come to me, you say you've raped, go to hell. You come to me, you say you've killed uh, your girlfriend, go to hell. Defence lawyers often take a lot of criticism for representing some of the people they do. And of course, it's Mr. Kataki's choice not to represent certain individuals in the future. Defence attorneys are absolutely necessary, though. And as far as I'm concerned, it's unfair to cast them in the same light as their clients. They're doing a very necessary job. We all want a free and fair justice system. And being able to present a solid defence is a big part of that. The tactics taken by some defence attorneys are certainly questionable, but we must also remember that they are instructed by their clients. With that said, 
I would like to see us come to a point where character assassination of a victim is simply not allowed, unless it provides a direct defence. The claims that Sandile made about Karabo had absolutely no bearing on the crime he was charged with. As far as I'm concerned, that testimony should never have even got into the public domain. He wasn't claiming self-defence, or that he was driven to murder by the alleged behaviours of his victim. He was saying he didn't do it at all. So how was anything Karabu did or didn't do even relevant in that context? This is something that is addressed in an episode of the podcast, Real Crime Profile. It's episode 256, and it's called Profiling Serial and Serious Domestic Violence Perpetrators and Stalkers. In the episode, Laura Richards discusses the serious domestic violence situation in the UK and some of the parallels to what we're experiencing in South Africa are quite fascinating. She addresses the role of law enforcement in protecting victims of domestic abuse, and I found it really interesting that they struggle with exactly the same problem we have here of law enforcement not being geared up to deal with these situations. Would Karabo still be alive today if police had properly investigated the initial assault charges? Maybe not. But it would have been a damn sight better than telling them to sort it out themselves. These sorts of counterclaims should be red flags to police in my opinion. We've seen it in several cases of abuse that end in murder just in this podcast. Yes, some people use it as a tit-for-tat when a relationship is breaking down, but the evidence was there that this was not a baseless claim from Karabo's end. The injuries she received during the assault on her birthday were clearly not self-defense on Sandile's part. I highly recommend that you have a listen to that episode of Real Crime Profile, as it provides some really interesting insights. Karabo's sister Bontle and two of Karabo's friends have realized Karabo's dream since her death. The women have formed the Karabo Makwena Foundation, which is geared towards, quote, building a generation of substance. Our goal is to stand up against injustice in society and continuously provide support for helpless women and children, end quote. Bontle and the rest of the McQuena family have found it understandably difficult to move on without their sister and daughter. Her brother speaks about having a deep anger inside of him that he doesn't know what to do with. Her sister, on the other hand, says that she often feels empty. She still expects her sister to walk through the door at any minute, and every time she has to acknowledge that she never will, the pain of her loss descends all over again. Her friends who knew about some of the abuse live with guilt. This is her friend, Queen Lebo Mkiza, who after begging Karabo to leave Sandile, eventually decided to just be there for her during her pain. We don't have to take things like this light. We need to act and act as soon as possible. Because I left it, I left it, and I left it, and the child was crying all along. Now today, I'm doing this to say, I might have not done anything. When you kept crying to me, when you kept on confessing and confiding in me, but today, I'm standing, taking a step to say this madness, this thing must stop right here and right now, because evil prevails when good women and men do nothing. In a recent speech, President Cyril Ramaphosa addressed some of the issues around abuse of women and children. I feel that his statements were necessary and valid, but speeches really do nothing. There were speeches when Karabo died too. The Minister for Women in the Presidency at the time, Susan Shabangu, said the following... Whilst Karabo came across as very strong, but internally he was weak. She was weak. Karabo was weak, and now she is dead. 
Are you kidding me? If this was the type of victim-blaming mentality that existed in a person who was supposed to represent the rights of women at the time, is it any wonder that we're still seeing women slaughtered today? It is extremely difficult for anyone who has not been in an abusive situation or under coercive control to understand why victims don't just leave. There are a myriad of reasons for that, but none of them are the point. Telling someone that abuse is their fault because they stayed in a relationship is like telling a person with an autoimmune disorder that it's their fault for having an immune system. Every time we question why a victim didn't leave, we take responsibility away from the abuser. Should we continue to promote ways that make it easier for abuse victims to leave? Absolutely. But that's only part of the solution. Until abuse victims feel like they are taken seriously by those in a position of power, abusers will continue to take advantage. Sandile Mansour was given the green light to continue the day he put Karabo in hospital and nothing happened to him. So we can come up with all the hashtags we want, and we can be as angry as we like. But until the deep core of our mentality as a society, not even a country, shifts from outrage after the fact to implementation of preventative laws and policies, we will continue to find 22-year-old girls in fields with their bodies decimated. We will continue to find heavily pregnant women tied to trees and savagely stabbed. Karabu Mukwena was not an icon of change. She was not a hashtag or a foundation, an episode of a podcast or an article in the newspaper. Karabu Mukwena was someone's daughter. She was someone's friend and someone's sister. Sandile Mansour didn't see her as any of those things. He saw her as a possession. She was a trophy to add to his collection, like his gold BMW and his expensive watch. Karabo didn't want to play victim, as she put it in her own words. She wanted to show that she could handle her own business. She wanted to prove that she could overcome the difficulties she was experiencing. After her murder, one of her friends made it known that she'd finally taken the decision to end her own abusive relationship because of what happened to Karaba. And maybe that is the key to real change. Small, incremental shifts like that. Because who knows if that friend would have been next. And who knows who else may be next. Thank you for listening to episode 33, The Murder of Karabo Mukwena. Before I end off, I'd like to play you a promo for a really excellent Australian true crime podcast that covers cases that occur within schools and where the perpetrators are students or teachers. Here is Anna Thompson from the podcast Apple for the Teacher. Hello everyone. Let me tell you about the Apple for the Teacher podcast. I'm Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So you're probably thinking it's about reading, writing and arithmetic, right? Well, think again. It's a fresh take on true crime, where you wouldn't expect to find true crime. In schools, yes, schools. I will share with you the tragic and shocking stories I have uncovered in my own profession. You will hear stories about murder, abduction, school bus hijack, student disappearance, suicide, kidnap and ransom, school camp tragedy, the list goes on. So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, then Apple for the Teacher is for you. So join me as I present The Bad Apples. But until then, remember to be a good apple.
If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Fans of the book Blood on Her Hands by Tanya Farber should definitely listen out for next week's episode, as I suspect you may be interested in what I'll be covering. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Mm -hmm.